hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. So, welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. Hello, Joe, or maybe I should say, Watcher. Oh, how long have you been sitting on that one for? Oh, for the last two weeks. <laughs> oh, yo, was he full? Um, oh. Well, Watcher, uh, I'm really well, thank you. How are you doing? Good. Yeah, I'm good. Um, sweating a bit because it's, you know, typically the first day when the first week of uh, kids going back to school, suddenly the, the hot weather comes back. Like the risk of things getting too dirty too quickly as i've said very recently on many podcasts you are hot 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 so i'm not at all surprised that you're hot <laughs> you know no you've got to follow on from that statement Stop it. <laughs> <laughs> um do you know what i feel as if uh this is a true tonic today because i've you know what? i've had to watch resurrection of the daleks grim and miserable the wedding oh. of river song which is the end of my least favourite season of New Who. All this Father's Day, you know, which I loathe. And finally, I knew I could trust you, Daniel Knight, to choose a story that is like putting on a pair of comfy slippers. Well, I, I have to confess, I don't think I did choose it. I think you suggested it. And I was, kind of, I was like, yeah, I love this one as well, because it is. I think it's my favourite Hartnell. Um I don't think it's the best one, but I think it's my favourite one. And as as you say, it's like a pair of comfy slippers. Um, and it's because I, I, like you, I, I I first saw this back in was it 1992, gosh, which still feels only about 10 years ago. And the BBC took um, the uh, unprecedented um, decision to repeat some classic Doctor Who, or as it was called back then, Doctor Who before the original but before the series came back and they chose this story and indeed one of the questions that we asked because we did put out on facebook uh, uh, twitter or x or whatever it's called this week um any questions and comments and a couple uh, quite a few people have said this is one of their favorites or their favorite hartnell story it's certainly my marks one mm-hmm. of my mom's favorite i mean he, he loves weird weirdly loves that character of edith in this to such an extreme level that she's serving <laughs> drinks at every doskers ceremony on this podcast to watch who out of all the the sort of ancillary characters supporting characters she's probably the strongest i think and she's certainly the most yeah. well defined uh, and best uh, and best acted and there is a moment which we will talk about okay and you and i do rosa so we're not you know, yeah capable of talking about tough stuff mm-hmm. uh which i'll feels very inappropriate in this story and i think it's uh the nature of doctor who sort of discovering what it can and cannot do mm-hmm. and interestingly mm-hmm. it never does that again thank goodness no it sort of hints at certain things like that but doesn't yeah yeah um what See, i completely forgot that it was me that's i always wondered if i was a man of taste and distinction and now I know. you are <laughs> apparently so um and you're not alone. Well, quiet. Oh, yeah. And I think you're right. This is a very popular story. I don't know where it came in that DWM poll that came out recently, but well, I suspect it was quite high. It came second. Did it? Yeah, it came second. And in fact, it's quite interesting because they put in DWM the results of the last ones. And when they did the first one back in 1998, it was sort of mid table and it slowly cro- crept up. 
Um, and so other stories, the the rescue I noticed had, had gone from about sort of 25 to sort of halfway, sort of 12th or 13th, That's whereas like the, the Celestial blue... Toymaker plunged. Well, I mean, I'd say that was Which just I... a matter of taste. but Yes. <clears throat> and do you think it's got something to do with the Blu-ray coming out? Possibly. Because also, because top of the list was the uh, Dalek Invasion of Earth, and third was the Daleks' Master Plan. And I think if we could see all of the Daleks' Master Plan, I think it would be the other way around. I think I think that's it's the far stronger story, um, and it seems to be. But again, it's quite dark. There are some parts where, um, again, I remember listening to it with the with the family on holiday in the car, trying to keep the kids amused. And at one point, I think it was after after Katarina dies. Um, my wife sort of said, this is a bit bleak, isn't it? <laughs> but, you know, what happened to the doctor rescuing his companion? It's like, yeah, well, when we get home, I'll show you Earth Shock. This was going out at five o'clock in the evening. Yeah. Traumatising Ian Levine and, and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> that explains a lot. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, that I, I, it's very good. I don't think it's the second best Hartnell story. No, no. I mean, you could... You know, we've been talking about the massacre, and that's uh, as a piece of drama is 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 brilliantly written and directed. We think it's direct. Well, yeah, you can't really see it. We can't see anything. There's no not even any telly snaps. Thank you, John Wiles, for not bothering to. I know. We've me and Mark have been celebrating John Cura recently. You know, he must have had a couple a couple of months where he had no work at all. Mm -hmm. Do you know what? Right? I'm going to tell you a, a shocking fact about those DWM polls. Do you know why they were separated into individual doctors? It's Was it to placate one of the doctors who keeps complaining that all one of his stories is always bottom of the polls? That's not what I've heard. I've heard it was oh, okay. authority. It's because one particular doctor, and I don't think you would take even two seconds to guess which one, their stories all wound up at the bottom of the polls. So mm. if it was a massive poll... Jodie mm -hmm. would be at the bottom, pretty much all of them. I mean, it's baffling, isn't it? Really? Okay. So they, so they literally separated them just so, you know, it was sort of a, a fair game for each dog. Okay. So. Right. I, yeah, I can't understand why people don't appreciate the Jodie Whittaker era more than, than they do. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that uh, it, it's not perfect. Um, and... But I don't think there is any era of Doctor Who that is. Uh, but I, I've, I've certainly enjoyed it. In the same breath, I don't think you can compare Spyfall to the Time Meddler. You know, no. they're, they're TV made in completely different eras. So mm -hmm. I think putting them all up against each other is a yeah. pointless exercise. Whereas you can compare the Time Meddler to Dalek Evasion of Earth. Mm -hmm. They came out at roughly the same time. It was roughly the same production team and regulars. Yeah. You know, uh, even so, even with classic who I don't think you compare you can compare you know an unearthly child to survival it's a completely different show even even something earlier like spearhead from space or or you know it's it, it that's why it's lasted so long because it's evolved and it's changed and it's a completely different beast I mean even in this season you've got you know at the start of series season two you've got the four regulars from the first series. And by that, by the end of the season, three of them have gone, um, and to be replaced by two others who are soon on their way out as well. But that's that's a bit of a sore point, to be honest. 
I um I said to you off mic, season three is my favorite season of William Hartnell. And in some ways it's because of the roll call of companions and production mm. team. So I think what you get is this um dramatically diverse amount of stories. Yeah. Unlike anything I think you're ever gonna see in the show again. Uh but I think season two, which we're watching, and especially this story, it's some of Hartnell's best performances. Yes, absolutely. And certainly this one, um, he seems to be very much, it, it, it was a, you know, it, it was sort of supposed to be towards the end of Verity Lambert's time and he was starting to get very um, uncomfortable and would get very argumentative and, it would be up to Maureen O'Brien and Peter Purvis to, to calm him down. Mm. Um, and of course, John Wiles, he didn't get on with at all. And I, he, he, he was very, William Russell said he was, he was angry with them for leaving. He was angry with, uh, with, with William Russell and, and Jacqueline Hill for leaving. Why do you want to leave? It's such a success. Come on, you've got to keep going. Um, and they wanted to go off and do other things. But that's because he was an older man. At, I think he knew the twilight of his career so of course mm. he was going to cling on to that success. Yeah. The, the, you know, the most successful role he's ever had. William mm. Russell's a young man. You know, he's going to go on and, and play the hero in all manner of other shows. Yeah. There's a bit actually in episode one where he asks Vicky, well, we'll watch it in a second, where he asks Vicky. And then when she gives her response, he puts his arm around her and sort of mm. pats her as if that's an, an approving response. I don't think that's the Doctor. I think that's Hartnell. I think it is. Yeah, into more yeah you, you're all right with me, love, all right? Yeah. <laughs> and, but also as well with the time men, love, and we'll discuss all of this, uh, it re- revolutionised the historical stories. Mm-hmm. Um, it's meta in a way the show really hasn't been mm-hmm. before. It opens out the mythology of the show with the monk and the other TARDIS. Like Dennis Spooners, he's pushing. He's looking ahead, I think. Uh, People often say Doctor Who survived because of Patrick Troughton. If Patrick Troughton hadn't been so brilliant. And yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. But on a smaller scale, what Dennis Spooners does with this story, it it basically brings in a new dimension to the historical stories. Um, And it muddies the water. I think somebody put as one of the comments, it muddies the water of, of... whether you can or can't change history, and I think that's the, the yeah, that that's it's a that's the difference between Dennis Spooner's approach to the to the series and to David Whittaker's approach in the first season. Are you telling me that we've got Dennis Spooner to thank for all those Stephen Moffat stories where he goes around nipping and tucking the timelines? You've got him to thank for yeah uh, for. A lot of things, I think. Also, for the idea of the Doctor not being the only person, or not the only Time Lord, although, of course, it's not mentioned that he's a Time Lord. Um, yeah, yeah, afraid so. It's his his fault. There's a lot of things that are, are Dennis Spooner's fault. But I think Dennis Spooner also revolutionised the show in that he made it a lot more fun. He can write dialogue that bounces. Mm-hmm. Like, I, William Russell says in, I think it's the Romans, because Spooner writes that one as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, that it, he wrote sayable lines. It wasn't just functional science fiction dialogue, mm. which they got sometimes. Mm. It was stuff that, you know, just rolls off the tongue. And you can tell they're loving this dialogue in this. Yes. Well, should we go and watch it? I think we should. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Who's going to count us in? Well, I introduced us, so you can count us in. Aye, aye, sir. So let's <laughs> Sorry, go in. Big bossy again. I know. Like. <laughs> All right, keep going. Five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Oh, my favourite titles, look. Is it just, just the titles or the music as well? Well, the music, I don't think, ever sounds as unearthly as this again. Mm. As mysterious and weird. I still can't quite... And I know how they did it. It just yeah. doesn't sound like any kind of instrument, does it? No. And the I like the evocative special effects, which, you know, it, it's on the cheap. But, mm-hmm. you know, again, it's mis- mysterious and unknowing. And yeah, it's weird. Heart or Ear, it does weird really well. It does. It does. <laughs> So there he is, the governor, and Maureen O'Brien. What do you think of Maureen O'Brien? Fabulous. Mm. I think she's very underrated. I think she's, um, she was sort of, you know, when I sort of started getting into Doctor Who as a kid and reading sort of early editions of Doctor Who magazine, she was kind of written off as being a bit of a screamer and a bit of a sort of girly girl. And I suppose there is a certain aspect to that. But I think there's some there's something about her that she's and particularly in this story, now that she's out of the shadow of Ian and Barbara, that she comes across as a very strong, independent, and she trusts the doctor. I mean, look at the way she's looking up at him and and um you know, she's just she, she the the idea of the of, of Vicky sort of not idolizing the doctor, but she completely trusts him, doesn't she? She's that's her dad now, so, isn't it? it is. That's her surrogate dad or a granddad. And he seems to be far more fairer and, and less, you know, critical of her than she does than he than he is of Susan. Oh, he's so low. That bit in there, yeah. the crusade, I always talk about it, where it's mm. like, it's gonna be very, very dangerous. Mm. And, you know, and touches her nose. And here where he holds her and comforts her and says, Are you okay? Do you want to go home? Oh, it's gorgeous. It's it's that fallacy that Hartnell is a prickly doctor. doctor. It's just wrong. He's it, so it good at times. Yeah. I mean, watch them here in a minute when they hear um, Stephen bashing around in the next room and the two of them have got the, the shoe and the coat. I mean, it's <laughs> like a comedy of manners. It's fabulous. Mm. I could see a sitcom set in the TARDIS, you know, with this three. Yes. Yeah, they're not quite so... Um... I wouldn't say straight laced as Ian and Barbara, but there's a bit more of a, uh, an, I suppose, because they're sort of let younger characters. It's a bit, it, it seems to be a little bit more, uh, yeah, a little bit more flex, sort of flexible, relaxed. a bit more, relaxed. sorry, relaxed. That's the word. But also as well, you're right, because I think in the chase, Susan is written young. Mm-hmm. You know, she, oh, I am a useless person and all this yeah she, she gets in that and you know fainting when they're trying to get her off the building and, so, and then you're right between that story and this now she's like the oldest regular suddenly mm-hmm. she's got to be the one that's teaching Stephen so she's yes. got to be a bit more mature mm-hmm. but I think she, I think that's just Terry Nation writing her as as being the the, the sort of the helpless female because in the space museum she's she's oh. basically the one that sort of starts the rebellion revolution she's the, yeah exactly what is the question again for what question for what purpose are the arms needed and that's when she says it isn't it oh 
let's talk about some of these atmospherics in this and how he manages to convince in that studio that he's out on location. Now, I always thought this was either filmed at Lime Grove or Riverside, but this is filmed at TV Centre. All he's got is a load of stock footage, mm-hmm. brilliant sound effects of sea and seagulls, and a rolling yeah. sky effect. Yeah. And I was convinced this was on location when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So also the 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 lie that all sixty stocks who looks cheap and unconvincing. Well, mm. I don't no, know. no. And there's a quote from Peter Purvis on IMDb, which he said that, you know, he never saw any sets wobble. And, you know, he was in Doctor Who for a year and it was everything was fine. And it's but TV, that's how that's how TV was made in those days. You watch Faulty. I think I've said this before. You watch Faulty Towers. You watch John Cleese dash up those stairs. Those walls are wobbling. Yeah. Um, you know, green screen and you know, chroma key. You've got in things like Dad's Army and the two Ronnies. It's that's how TV was made, and you just accepted it. How can I be watching neighbors from the 90s? You know, and those sets are very precarious <laughs> every time they're coming in and out and having a row and slamming the doors. Um, I do wish Peter Burvis had kept the beard though, because oh, he's got a lovely bit of scruff there. I, th- I think both Maureen O'Brien and Peter Burvis are criminally underrated. I think it may have been because I remember reading an interview. They, were, they did separate interviews in the 80s for Doctor Who magazine, and neither of them were very um, positive about being in Doctor Who. I, they they liked the people that they were working with. They enjoyed the company, and but as a job, neither of them. Well, I mean, Peter Purvis went was out of work for a year before. I mean, I think he had a couple of sort of small parts, and then he got Blue Peter. And Maureen O'Brien also, I think she she said that she ended up having to be in a a supply teacher as a drama a drama teacher. But then, I mean, she's gone on to do she's had, gone on to have quite a good career, um, and also she's a writer as well now. So I I wonder if it's because of that sort of negativity that they had in their interviews. And I th- and I think I think they've sort of made their peace with Doctor now. I mean, it's you know and to, you know good for them it's it's kind of like a pension for them because they're now doing commentaries they've done they do big finish they've done some of the behind the sofas they can um, hear the sound of the cash registers ringing can't they peter they, they does mean, more yeah. conventions than uh, colin baker these days but he yeah. talks about the show very fondly now yes and in the blu-ray interview with maureen o'brien which was astonishing because I've never heard such an in-depth interview with her. Mm-hmm. Um, she talks about how she was really ashamed of her own performances in Doctor Who and how oh. she felt that she was sort of slumming it. Mm-hmm. I just don't think that's the case. So it, just, it goes to show that this self-deprecating nature that you have mm-hmm. is catching. Ah. Well, I didn't catch it off her. I've never met Maureen O'Brien. Oh. And if I did, I would say how wonderful she is and to tell her stop being silly and she's absolutely marvellous. As, oh, as it would hope that if you did meet Maureen O'Brien, you wouldn't catch anything off her. <laughs> Good grief. Ah. Um, but I do like the fact that she comes into the show and it, she's the opposite of Susan, who was always screaming and and terrified all the time. And sometimes that worked and sometimes that helped. But a lot of the time it was just hysterical. Vicky comes yeah. in and she's up for the adventure mm-hmm. she's, she's like come on let's go to Rome let's have some yeah. fun <laughs> yeah oh I think I may have poisoned Nero oh ah. 
Kill Nero? I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? We just talked all over there, the bit where he goes, that over yonder is the dematerializing control. Over there is the doors. That is a chair with a pounder on it. Poetry. Poetry, dear boy. <laughs> oh, he's great, isn't he? <clears throat> and here we have the, the Saxons with uh, with Mark's friend Edith. And of course, he's obsessed, Elise... Daniel. He's obsessed with her. She's um because she was in um the cave she was in the tribe of gum wasn't she played her um and sadly she died quite young she was only in her early forties when she died in the seven in, in about nineteen seventy six or thing seventy seven she was died in, of cancer oh, of course she was in the unearthly child as well mm, yeah that's really sad can I tell you a a, a funny story it's a bit rude well you might want to just wait for this line because this eye is the best line ever. Oh, God, you quote it then. Space helmet. What do you think this is? A space helmet for a cow? Hmm? <laughs> rubbish, rubbish, dear boy. <laughs> no more so than your theory. Oh, we're starting to do the, yeah. Oh, no, he clutches his lapels and he's sort of going up against somebody. It's the funniest. Particularly with somebody, he's looking up at somebody who's taller than him, like Peter Purvis was, is, yeah. Or Nicholas Courtney, you know, no, you shut up, sir. <laughs> 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 he's so great. <laughs> Oh God! The dialogue is very witty, though, isn't it? It is. You can see why Spooner went on to do a lot of those ATC shows, The Avengers, and things like that. Like, because because I think they rely on that sort of quick paced dialogue. Yeah, the sort of very sort of quick witted. I mean, one of my favourite episodes of The Avengers is one that he wrote, which is the the Tara King episode. Um, Look, stop me if you've heard this one, but there were these two fellas. Mm. Which has got, um, I mean, it's got Jimmy Jewell, John Cleese, which that was before he was in Monty Python. Um, and then, and of course, Bernard Cribbins, who I think is wearing the same jumper in that episode as he was wearing in his other episode with um, Liz Fraser. But it's, yeah, it's a really funny, good episode. And I think he got that sort of slightly tongue in cheek, um, not taking it too seriously sort of feel of, of the Avengers, which I think he brings. I think it brings to Doctor Who as well. Oh, for sure. Especially mm. in the Romans. The mm. Romans is such a pacey, witty script. It, yeah, it's it, very, it's very funny. Well, I think the structure, the structural problems of the time meddler are, I think it starts extremely vividly mm. and, and it leads up to that brilliant cliffhanger of the gramophone and all the questions that brings. I do think there's a bit of running around in two and three. Yes. Back to the monastery, back to the Saxons, you know, mm. and, and all of that. But then, when that cliffhanger hits at the end of three, the it's a whole new ball game for episode four, and four is one of the best episodes of the year. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, you were going to tell me a story which was slightly rude. Oh, I was hoping you were going to forget about that. Oh, okay, um, I've forgotten so about it. When when Mark and I were dating, okay, he uh, we used to meet in London, right? And uh, you know, we meet in London, and you do the things you do when you're dating. And he came along one time. He's getting into bed. He's got a bloody T-shirt with Edith's face on it. And I'm like, you can bloody take that off. I'm not getting in bed with bloody Althea Charlton. Yes, yeah, sorry. I did say it was a bit rude. Well, but you also said that he's very obsessed with her and wearing a T-shirt with her face on. Trouble is, he's got, yeah. all, he's got Kirsty from the Highlanders on a T-shirt as well. He sometimes wears her to bed. I mean, it's all a bit strange. Where does he get all these T-shirts from? Uh, he has them custom made. Yeah. Oh, that's Hannah Gordon. Yeah, well, she's very pretty. She is very, yeah. And she went, there was somebody else who went on to 
a very glittering career after after she did Doctor Who. Here is our first instance of somebody else from the Doctor's planet, and we kind of know it here, although we're not told it because of mm-hmm. he knows what the TARDIS is, doesn't he? Yeah, he's he yeah. When he puts his he puts his hand up his his ear up to the to the TARDIS door, and it's like, ah, uh, yes, I know what this is. And what a turn from Peter Butterworth, mm. who effectively has to take control of the story as Hartnell has a week off. Yes. And like you said, you just get some stock footage here and it's nicely sort of conveys that it's it's a sea, it's they're, they're on the beach and they're by the sea without leaving TV centre. And I think the the sets, both of the beach and here in sort of the Saxon community in the mm-hmm. forest, it's all very convincing. It's sympathetically lit. It looks quite real. It's um, it's Barry Newbury, isn't it, who did the, the design for this? Um, and he's one of Doctor Who's really, really good designers. I mean, he he sort of he was sort of worked on it quite a lot throughout the throughout. I think his his last story was The Awakening. Where he designed that that really wonderful church set, um, oh, yeah, he was incredible, and he, he especially did well. Like he mostly did historicals, didn't he? I think, I think so. Yeah, I think he only did one science fiction one in the sixties, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, look at the exterior of that monastery. Mm-hmm. He was- did. Uh, he did do a lot of research as well. I seem to remember reading when I was sort of doing my research for this that he he looked at sort of various different mono, you know, are they monographs or books and and sort of you know looked at um, how to design it. And there's a nice perspective with that sort mm-hmm. of sort of part of the building that's sort of distant. And again, ah. people will be going, "Hang on, that 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 light came on quite quickly." Yeah, it's so clever. It's so clever as well because I believe there were letters sent to I was the Radio Times or whoever was publishing at the time saying, you know, these anachronisms in Doctor Who, they're not doing their research. A lie no. gramophone, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, dear. yeah, yeah. Wait, wait until you, yeah. I mean, look at that sky. Look, that looks it's so out. good, isn't it? It's very, I mean, it's so it's it's such a simple effect, but it works. Just that nice background. And you kind of wonder why they never did it more often in Doctor Who if they were doing sort of interior scenes, you know, exterior scenes in the studio. Mysteries of Doctor Who, yeah. And I've done 600-odd episodes of this thing now, yeah? So I've covered a lot of ground, is they do seem to forget the triumphs of the past and make mistakes with things they've already got right five years Mm. ago. It's such an odd thing. Mm. You know, we we tried an enormous monster before, and it didn't work. Why are we doing it again? You know, we haven't got the money. Oh, I love these scenes between the Doctor and Edith. It does show that, um, you know, the idea of Hartnell being this grumpy old man is... is I, I, he, he's, he's the only... Well, I say only Doctor. Certainly classic from the classic do- series, Doctors. He seems to go on a journey. His character softens as he goes on. And, um, you know, he's very mysterious and untrustworthy in the first few stories. And then you get that, you know, the edge of destruction. It's a it's a nice character piece where the characters can understand each other. And then they go on to be a bit more as a as a sort of family unit from Marco Polo onwards. I think if you watch like 
the Daleks, where mm. you know it's like you old fool, you stupid old fool, you had to see this all of that stuff. Yeah, and you I don't know. Then watch the Web Planet, where he's going around going, you know, echoes, dear boy, ha ha, mm-hmm. you know. It's like wow, <laughs> how do we get from there to there? You know, mm. but it just shows all the shades he's got. I'm still. I said this in the Savages recently. I think he's the governor. I don't think he's been bettered. I think there's been different interpretations of the Doctor. Yeah. For me, this is the governor. My dad always used to say that there's never been a Doctor as good as Hartnell. And I always used to say, well, yeah, but what about Tom Baker? He said, yeah, well, yeah, Tom, Tom, Tom Baker was Tom Baker. He was Doctor Who as an alien. Whereas, you know, William Hartnell's Doctor, he is alien, but it's not as pronounced. We just, we just don't know at this point. He could be from you know earth in the future we don't know that he's an alien with two hearts and you know it's respiratory bypass system and he's 700 years old and he's from gallifrey it's that nice mystery so he just could be just a a, a, an old man from the future from our planet so i think that and i think that makes a difference i think as well because that sort of never cruel never cowardly thing that um lets and dicks brought in Mm. yeah because none of that's been established. So anything goes. Mm-hmm. So he can pick up that rock in an unearthly child. He can pick up that shovel in the reign of terror and smack that man over the head, yes. you know, or wave the sword around with Nero in the sauna in the Roman. And that anything goes at the moment. And that's mm-hmm. exciting. Oh, how great is this as he's trying to so he doesn't quite know, does he, where they are. So no. he's, trying, he's trying to figure out he's what the time realizing is. where it is. Yes, he's interrogating Edith whilst being very charming. If they're in Northumbria, why don't they all sound like Fraser Gregory? Well, we wouldn't understand a bloody word, would we? <laughs> like Mark of the Rani all over again. This, the Edith could be one of his very distant relatives. I hope he's listening to this. Fraser, that could be your great 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 grandmother. You go. With a couple of other greats in there, maybe. Oh, did you what he said there? Yes. Oh dear. I mean, I I adore the Hartnell historicals. I think it's one of my favourite genres of the show's entire And when Chip has brought back those very serious sort of deep dive historicals in series 11 well we did yeah. right, didn't we and there's mm-hmm. Pinot in there as well and the witch finders i just thought yeah he's he's doing what they're doing here which is kind of having some fun with history but making mm-hmm. point and giving you tons of local color yes but i think also with certainly with rosa and demons of the punjab he was looking more to the david whittaker form of 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 yeah. historical where it was a case of you know you can't change history not one line and I, I i kind of sometimes think it's a bit of a shame those two were in the same season but there is a difference because with with rosa the doctor and graham and yasin they become part of history they become half part of the narrative the his, history that historical narrative of rosa parks not being able having to move and yeah. it's graham's having to sit in that seat and not having to move Whereas Punj- Demons of the Punjab, it's almost like they can just walk away and it, what happens has to happen, but they're not actually part of it. But, I mean, two two brilliant stories, I think. Um, Who's he on with that horn a minute ago when he just tossed the mead into the grass? 
bit like um, Tom Baker putting that cup of cup of drink in his pocket in um, Power of Crow, isn't it? Oh, no, he does say, doesn't he, in the gunfires, I'm afraid I don't touch alcohol, but a little glass of milk and I'll be too delighted to see you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, drink I knew alcohol. I was going to do terrible hard he's, he's knocking it. He's knocking that Roman wine back in the Romans. And don't tell me he didn't have a little tipple in when he was, when, you know, during the reign of terror, which for some reason is his favourite historical period. Yeah, okay. Lots of people being beheaded. Lovely. Well Press done, Doctor. In, Thank you. Dress up in fine clothes. That's why yeah. I go around with a bit of pomp. Mm. Oh, all of this is fun. With, I mean, I think Stephen's a bit too pig-headed, but her trying to convince to him that they've gone, that they can time travel, that's really fun. Yeah. And it, it just accepted, yeah. wasn't it, in Unearthly Child? There was no need for this. We haven't done any of this before. No. It's quite a nice. It's it's quite nice because I'm sure the audience at home are going. You should listen to Vicky because she knows what she's talking about. And I wonder how what the audience reaction was to to Stephen in comparison to to Ian and Barbara, because he's quite hot headed and and impetuous. And certainly the first half of season three, the reins held. So I don't mm-hmm. I don't think you know he lost anyone. But of no. course he's proven right in a second when they find the wristwatch. Yes. You know, so he's like, oh, yeah, 1066, is it? All right. Mm-hmm. That's really fun, though, because at this point, we still don't know. So no. we're sort of chalking up all these mysteries. I think it's a really, I want to say responsible, but that's too boring a word for something that's this fun. It's a really engaging way of telling a historical mm-hmm. story in a different way. Yeah. No, it's 11th century England, actually, but there we are. Oh, well done. Well done. <laughs> Sorry, that's it. That's, uh, I, I don't know whether that was um, a goof on his part or whether it was, uh, um, you know, something wrong in the script. The, the bit I love in episode one that makes me die every time is his reaction when the gramophone slips a groove and the monks mm. all go, Ooh. Yes, it's, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's great. It is great. I mean, there's no real pace to this, is there? Like, that's that's probably the biggest sticking point. And because it, it, somebody said, was uh, yes, Jim Allenby said, was this the ideal story to show during the '90s repeat season? Um, I don't know what other stories would have been as as. It's not no, it's not action packed, but I don't think it's slow. It's you know, it's we're almost to the end of the 25 minutes and it's gone quite quite quickly i think Um, because we have had there is sort of three plots going on isn't there you've got stephen and vicky with Mm -hmm. her trying to convince him the doctor figuring out where they are and knowing finding out there's something suspicious going on at the monastery and then whatever the monk is up to Mm -hmm. yes was he a big name already at this point then peter butterworth um, he was very well known. I mean, we all know him from, from as being the guy from the Carry On films, but actually he hadn't done any of the Carry Ons at this point. His first Carry On film um, was Carry On Cowboy, which was actually um, was filmed when this was being shown in July 1965. Um, so he was he was sort of quite well known as a comedian. He had a children's show. Um, I think it was called Butterworth Time or Butterworth's Progress or something. Um, 
and he'd been in films and I mean, I mean he was a, not a, a, a huge film star, but he was sort of a well-known face. He what fascinates been... me is how Hartnell responds to him because he clearly mm. loves working with him and those scenes in three and four absolutely sizzle. But we know Hartnell, if there's like movie actors in, like Max Adrian and people like that from The Myth Makers, he got mm-hmm. really shitty with them, didn't he? There was the rumour that he didn't feel comfortable working with Max Hadrian because Max a- Max Adrian? Hadrian? Adrian, I think. Adrian. Um, because he was, um, and I apologise for it, because he was gay and Jewish. And that his that's the that's the rumoured reason why he didn't like working with, with Max Adrian. Um Maureen O'Brien, she mentions that. She mentions that he was incredibly intolerant. Mm-hmm. racist like she doesn't mm-hmm. even sex it was racist he was homophobic and all of those things that you probably should expect from somebody in their mid to late 50s in 1964 five whatever yeah. this was yeah but that he did try and keep a lid on it and like that he had a twinkle in his eye and she said look i know i know he had there were issues with him mm-hmm. i really loved him like like he was a good man underneath yeah. all of that boiling mm-hmm. anger and prejudice that he was a nice bloke i can't really condemn him for that back in the 60s it was a different time and people had different ideals and yeah uh, we've we've progressed uh, in some ways um and i think without wanting to make a political issue of it, there are still some people who would want to push us back to those times. Um, it, but there the, we are. The line I draw under Hartnell is, I don't think I would want to know him back then. Because no. he'd probably be vile to me. But I will enjoy his performances that he gave back then because mm-hmm. it's an absolute delight on the screen. Yeah. And I can, I, and I can do that. I know some can't. I can. Okay. Well, yeah. Well, Sorry, that was a very serious end to episode one. <laughs> Did you want to? Because we had we've had some very good um, comments and questions. I've mentioned about Jim Allenby. Should we just finish with a, another one? Yeah, let's he, do it. he he. Did we say which which he said? Um, it's one of his favourites. Should the monk have returned in the Daleks' master plan, or should he have been limited to one story? Also, am I the only person who feels sorry for him at the end of the story? He's a cheeky monk, but I love his irresponsibility. Yeah. Well, I, I did reply to that, Jim, and say, yes, he's so cheeky, he wants to machine, you know, blow up a, an entire Viking fleet with a, a a neutronic cannon. But apart from that, yeah, very cheeky. It's the fact that he writes his plans on a to-do list, you know, <laughs> to destroy Viking fleet. Yeah. you Can you imagine Sutek doing that? Or Davros? Oh, oh he's, I think he's wonderful. Davros wouldn't be able... He'd have to have Nida to pull the thing down, wouldn't he? Because he'd probably, yeah. Garments push it up too high. The, the fact that he's going to do something awful, he gets away with it because one, because of the tone of the story. Yes. Two, because he's such a fun character. Mm-hmm. Just want to be around him. Should he have appeared in Dalek Master Plan? Yes, because I don't think we would have had all of these, you know, big finish and new adventures and things mm. like that because he would have just been a one shot villain. Yes. I think the fact that he came back again, that sort of enticed people enough to say, well, why didn't they do even more down the line? And mm. to- sort of spin-off stories mm. with him yeah as for what other story would be t- will be shown instead 
I mean, the Aztecs, I think I think they would have they would have wanted to have stuck with a four part story because I think six episodes black and white would have been a bit too much. So possibly. I mean, they could have shown the an unearthly child again, but that had just come out on on video. Um, and I, when, I don't know about the Aztecs, whether that had been out on, on video. If I was um, doing the schedules, it would have been the gunfighters just to annoy everybody. Well, I would have. I would have loved to. Yeah, I would have. I would have, wouldn't have been annoyed because I think it's actually a lot better than than its reputation. Actually, I'll tell you what probably would have been a, a savvy choice is the mm-hmm. arc because the arc's Ooh. a big sort of bold science fiction story. It's yeah. got some ambitious visuals and mm-hmm. it's got some visuals that fail and it moves at a lick because it's effectively mm-hmm. two two parters. It is, yeah. yeah. So it doesn't really hang around long enough in any one time mm-hmm. period to get boring so i probably would have chosen that one okay yeah i can't think of any other four-part stories that all the war machines but that's not really very indicative of of hartnell's era is it no but it's another one that's got a bit of a pace to it and so actually so is the aztecs mm-hmm. we're deciding we're going to do a whole season of hartnell stories every single four-parter what even the celestial toy maker well, I didn't exist, did it? Or did it exist? Oh no, that no, it didn't. No, no, just had the last episode. Oh. No, that Billy Bunter character. Do you remember? If you step up, yeah, the- you'll be killed. <laughs> I'll tell you what. 